0: The Energy Gang is brought to you by Vertzilla Energy. Vertzilla is leading the transition toward a 100% renewable energy future. And to help others lead as well, it created the Path to 100%, which is committed to shortening the time it takes for cities, states, and communities to transition to renewables. You can find out more about solutions and the dialogue on how to transition the electric system at pathto100.org. We're also brought to you by Honeywell. Honeywell is a leading supplier of IoT solutions to mission-critical industries around the world. Honeywell Smart Energy helps utilities transform their grid operations through advanced solutions and targeted services from edge to cloud. Find out more at smartenergy.honeywell.com.
1: Green Tech Media Podcast.
0: From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey, I'm a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome. Over the next couple of episodes, we're going to dive into the top stories that define this frenzied and heavy year. This week, we'll start with a look back at how COVID reshaped the energy transition. We're going to revisit some predictions that did and didn't come true. And in our next episode, we'll look at a wider range of 2020 stories, non-pandemic related. Then later in the show, advertising and PR professionals are suddenly being pressured to reveal how much of their income is from fossil fuel clients. Are firms in this industry the next to lose their social license? And last, what could a youth climate corps accomplish and how should it be set up? We look to a Depression-era program to rally the passions of America's climate generation the gang is here passions are always rallied here (laughs) Catherine Hamilton is with us from Arlington Virginia she's our co-host and the co-founder of 38 North Solutions hi Katherine
1: hi getting ready for the holiday madness
0: and what kind of madness does that bring to you any particular Hamiltonian madness (laughs)
1: usually we have a big dessert party with hundreds of people which we're not going to have this year but i do have to be a little bit more thoughtful because with uh, a kid living in alaska now i have to mail things a lot sooner
0: jigger's gonna drive over from bethesda and be knocking on your door for some
2: dessert
1: (laughs) (laughs) i'll leave a shoebox of cookies out on the sidewalk jigger are you
2: actually going to decorate the whole house and go to the nines on that
1: Mm, we've done some inside we haven't put on all the outdoor lights so because you have that that great table
2: right with all those little figurines and
1: oh that's up my kids love Uh, that stuff my, My my,
2: my kid my kid Loved that last year, and was I think trying to break okay. some of the pieces. We successfully thwarted him from doing that.
1: It's totally fine. It's lived through four kids already, so no worries.
0: <laughs> I have like a five foot banister <clears throat> on my stairs, and I went to go buy a garland, and all they had was forty foot garland. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I pulled it out. I'm like, oh, it's like a you know like a oh. clown thing or a magician just <laughs> keep, keep pulling it out. Uh, Jigger Shaw is our other co-host. He's the president and co-founder of Generate Capital. He's in Bethesda, Maryland. How are you, Jigger?
2: I'm good. I'm good. We're uh, We're scaling a lot of things back this season, but, uh, but not our love for all of you. <laughs> well, let's begin with a
0: recap of a story that we have all lived and deeply felt, the 2020 pandemic. It's been a brutal 10 months for so many people, and it's exposed a lot of faults in our energy system, from how air pollution caused more pain and suffering for people of color when COVID hit, To political favoritism for fossil fuels through the American stimulus, to the vulnerabilities of public transit, and a recognition of the drastic changes we'll need to make in order to maintain the steep emissions drop we saw this year. I mean, we saw what, 8% drop in emissions, and we're gonna need to do that year after year after year after year. So it felt right to ask what just happened? What has the pandemic meant for the energy transition nearly a year on? We've seen oil markets collapse, businesses freeze up, people out of work, and massive swings in energy use. But simultaneously, we've seen a strong surge in renewable energy and storage. So each of us is going to look at a prediction about the pandemic that did play out and one that didn't. Catherine. What are your predictions that you want to talk about this week?
1: Yeah, so one thing is that uh, given the economic hit that the entire country has taken, and in particular the clean energy industry, we were really hoping to get a really good economic stimulus package. Uh, The House of Representatives passed a couple of big bills. Uh, The Moving Forward Act was one of them. There was a clean energy package. Both of those contained a lot of provisions that would be helpful to this industry that we really, really needed. Uh, But of course, the Senate did not take those up.
0: Well, this is a frustrating story, not just because of the inaction. But because of what happened through the CARES Act, I mean, the fossil fuel industries very explicitly got tens of billions of dollars in tax breaks and debt relief from the Federal Reserve. And so it, it wasn't just that we avoided taking action. It was that the action we did take actually benefited dirty energy in a pretty substantial way.
1: Yeah, that was super frustrating, especially since you know oil prices were historically low. And, you know, some of that just that funding just did not increase productivity or help the economy at all. And that's what we desperately need is an infusion into the economy. And that's what investment in clean energy would do.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd say that to me, the the part that was so frustrating was just that the Europeans actually did pass a green deal, and it's going to be roughly a trillion dollars of capital, right? I mean, you know, compared to, let's say, 90 billion we got in the era of stimulus, I mean, a trillion dollars is a big number. <laughs> and so, and it's in green hydrogen and electric vehicles and all that stuff. And so, when you think about what could have been, uh, you actually don't have to imagine it. <laughs> like, you actually can just look across the pond and see what could have been.
1: Right. And what they did was they took advantage of the fact that people had seen a vision of what life is like without a bunch of fossil fuel out there, without cars driving around and air, airplanes flying and and could actually have this, this sense of we can do this. And I think so they built that into every part of their COVID recovery. I was, of course, really hopeful we would do the same.
0: So what happened in America then? I mean, I remember Nancy Pelosi getting up and other leaders saying, yep, we think we can make this happen. We think that there are going to be subsequent uh, spending bills for relief, Um, and it never happened. There was a decent amount of optimism, you know, when the first uh, economic relief package was passed that there would be future bills. So what happened?
1: Well, I mean, Pelosi did pass bills. So she was true to her word. She got a lot done and sent them over to the Senate and the Senate did not act. I mean, they just didn't have the same priorities. They didn't think uh, they did not want to do anything on energy. They wanted to be very focused on helping businesses recover. So you know that was it was a Mitch McConnell call.
2: Well, I mean, when I talked to Grassley's office, what they told me was that, like Trump specifically said, nothing for solar and wind. Like like not just his legislative aide or his chief of staff or his whatever. Like the president himself was like, I do not want anything for solar and wind in the bill, right? Like, we were actually singled out. So, like, my sense is is that this is, this is more the Republicans, again, not standing up to Trump and standing up for their constituents. And instead, you know, like, just cowering in their, the presence of Trump.
1: Yeah, the White House had a lot to do with it. And they hate EVs, too. So it's not limited to wind and solar. Right. Um, but yeah, definitely the White House and, and the party has been very aligned on those priorities.
0: So while we're lamenting what could have been, we're looking forward to what may be under a Biden administration. And Congress has signaled that we could pass a nine hundred, more than $900 billion relief package with some potential clean energy goodies that the Biden administration has supported. So what is this latest activity, and could it recorrect some of the uh, earlier failures?
1: Yeah, so there's a lot that's trying to happen at the end of this year. They want to clear the decks uh, for the new Congress in January. And so they they have to pass their spending bills. They gave themselves an extra week to work on it and to come up with an agreement on some kind of a COVID relief package. Now, it's going to be very limited. I will be surprised if there's very much at all for energy in there certainly we continue to push for it but it's going to be you know a combination of aid assistance related to, specifically to covid for people and to to you know like rent and you know making sure that that people don't have to pay loans back as fast and that sort of thing rather than specific to clean energy I do think there is a big opportunity and the size of the opportunity and the scope of that Will depend on who is in control of the Senate. Uh, Certainly, after the Georgia races, we'll know more about that. But in any case, I do think there is an opportunity early in 2021 to do an infrastructure package of some sort. And that could get a lot of clean energy in it.
0: The premise of this conversation was to come with a prediction that did come true and one that didn't come true. You have two predictions that didn't come true. <laughs> what is your other one? Bah humbug. <laughs> Sorry.
1: <laughs> no, but the other one is actually really good news. That's why it was confusing to me. I was like, well, I don't know. We'll it's it. good news. We'll take it. Yeah, so you know, with COVID, everybody thought that everything would just shut down and that clean energy would stop altogether and that the the energy storage boom that has been going on would, would just slow to a halt. And it didn't. It did incredibly well. It is has been the biggest year ever for energy storage. The growth is unbelievable. Um, Wood Mac has said that storage beat records in Q2, and then again by 270% in Q3. So in the third quarter of this year, there were 476 megawatts installed. This is just massive. So while COVID was slamming the economy in a lot of ways, um, especially for conventional energy sources, boy, the, um, the storage industry is just booming. And they don't think that this is an outlier. So we look to the next year as you know, it's going to be double in 2020 and triple in 2021. So um, it's, it's pretty incredible. There's an expectation of uh, 7.5 gigawatts by 2025 of energy storage. So it's very good news.
2: You know, we had some significant um, events that caused people to sign these contracts last year. And I think what was heroic was getting the the projects built, right? That like, you know, with COVID restrictions and this and that and construction and that yada, like they actually were able to get them constructed and put online. Um, PG&E has some huge battery orders that they made as well as Southern California Edison to get online by June of next year um, to try to prevent any grid uh, issues for next year. Right. And so I think they're putting a tremendous amount of pressure on these big battery suppliers, whether it's Tesla or Fluence or others. And, um, these folks are delivering, which I think is fantastic.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because the residential uh, storage market is still, you know, not going quite as quickly. It's just a little bit more disaggregated, and it it, it is driven very much by resilience needs, coupled to solar. But uh, the the numbers are still high. It's just not growing at the pace as at the you know, transmission and grid scale side.
0: Okay, Jigger, over to you. A prediction that you or someone else thought
2: would play out. As a result of COVID, that did actually play out. So I had I had so many that like my brain was swirling. Um, the one I settled on was probably more conventional, but I still think is the most important one to me. Which is, um, I think we did predict the decimation of the oil industry, but I think it's been truly breathtaking to see like that decimation play out. Right uh, up to, up until last week, when Exxon finally caved. And, you know, reduce their uh, CapEx predictions uh, for investment as well as uh, wrote down, you know, some of their assets on their balance sheet. So it, it has truly been a disastrous year for the oil industry this year. And how wide are these ripples
0: that started, you know, in the spring of this year? I mean, how far does this go? What kind of wide reaching impacts can we expect in the oil industry that started in 2020?
2: It's pretty wide. So I was on a energy panel for the Federal Reserve of Dallas and Kansas City a few weeks ago. And, um, you know, the experts from the oil industry that were on the panel with me basically said that money has been pulled out of the sector just permanently. Right. Like like even on these auctions for assets now where they're, you know, ex- assuming people are going to buy stuff at 10 cents on the dollar, they're just not getting bids right? That people are basically saying, we're not allowed to bid on these assets. Like, even at zero cents, we're not willing to buy these assets. And so so there's just a lot less liquidity in the market. People recognize that this stuff is just off limits, and there's a lot less dollars uh, in this space. But more importantly, I think that when you think about the fall of ExxonMobil, I mean, um, it, is, it is one of those things where, um, you know, they're really one of the most or they used to be one of the most well-run, you know, companies in the world um, in terms of the operations. And I would say in the last four or five years, they've really, you know, uh, degraded to the point where uh, their return on equity, uh, their safety incidents, their oil spills—like everything—is up to the point where you're like, where, "Where? What happened to this company?" And at the beginning of the year, we saw some big announcements,
0: most notably from BP. We've had a couple episodes on what's happening within BP under Bernard Looney. Does that make BP's moves all the more uh, wise?
2: Yeah. I mean, when you think about wise, right, think about like this in dollar terms, right? And so, you know, ExxonMobil wants to spend roughly, let's say, 25 to $30 billion in CapEx every year. The hedge funds and others who are coming after them, Are basically saying that they should be spending less than $13 billion a year just to keep things running and keep the oil flowing, right? At a very minimum. That means that ExxonMobil basically burned through $15 billion or so that they didn't need to burn through, right? That BP, on a relative basis, saved right? And so by by moving more quickly. And that's a lot of money. I mean, for most of us, like $13 billion or $15 billion is something that could have paid for a lot of battery storage or a lot of wind and solar or a lot of electric vehicle fleets or whatever it is that you would have invested in. And so um, it is is breathtaking to think about how much money Exxon just set on fire this year um, that they could have actually saved if they would have been, you know, smarter earlier in the year. What about a prediction that you thought would play out that didn't? So you know, I would say that the prediction that I'm going to give you guys, I think, is a work in progress. But I think it relates to Catherine's uh, point on residential storage. I I truly thought that DERS and demand response would would get some sort of like blessing, right? Not just by the FERC. or by, you know, other folks, but actually like a real blessing, like that the utilities would say, we're definitely going to take advantage of this stuff. Or, you know, the grid operators were going to say, we're definitely going to take advantage of this stuff. And I've just had a lot of conversations recently, even like with, uh, with folks about what happened with BQDM, which was that REV project that New York was trying to do, um, to prove that they could, you know, push off um, uh, upgrading that substation in Brooklyn. And in the end, everyone has basically come to the conclusion that helping individual consumers, frontline consumers, you know, people of color, whatever, is hard. and they and it is their fourth priority that they would rather build a 300 megawatt uh, you know battery, just one battery than to figure out how to get these these assets in everyone's homes. They just think it's too hard. And even though they want it to work, and they want to say all the right things, the money is not flowing. That that did not happen this year, which I thought would change after the blackouts in California. I really thought money would flow differently, and it's mm-hmm. not flowing.
0: Is there a specific COVID crossover as well?
2: Well, the COVID crossover is real, right? Remember, think about how much electricity has shifted from commercial customers to residential customers this year, right? And so you have all these people at home who are using way more electricity, and they're happy to have lower electricity bills. They would love for their utilities to say, instead of spending... 10 billion over here, we're going to spend 2 billion in your houses because that actually produces the same benefit. It's 80% cheaper to provide $2 billion of stuff to you than to build $10 billion of more transmission distribution. But the regulators, everyone basically believes that something is amiss and they don't want, like, for instance, they could give people stuff for free. That is what Chris Clack's new analysis shows that you could give people all of this stuff for free and it would be cheaper than rate basing upgrades to the distribution grid and they would rather not give people stuff for free they'd rather you know people have to knock on doors and find people to opt in and pay a 25% copay and all this stuff to be able to do it because they just feel it's not right to give people stuff for free and so i feel like we are going to be behind the curve for much longer. And even with FERC 2222 and everything else, I feel like people are betting against individual action and individual household action.
1: Well, yeah, never mind New York. Go to MISO South, and all they want to do is build natural gas plants. So that's like yeah. a whole other thing.
2: So that, to me, I, I really thought, you know, I love the the press release from Ohm Connect with Sidewalk, you know, uh, the big announcement that they made on a $100 million fund. But I, I don't think that this will be a mainstream way of managing the grid um, for release this year and next year. And my sense is it's not tracking towards becoming a mainstream way that we manage the grid.
1: I wish I could say that this doesn't increase job security for me for the next couple of years. <laughs> but I'm afraid I'm going to have to keep... Plugging away in the vineyards for DERS. Oh my God! Well, it's certainly not for <laughs>
2: lack of your efforts that this is mm-hmm. occurring, but I, I do think that people are just used to like one contract, one asset, one large deployment. Um, so,
0: well, I'll start with a prediction that I think everyone thought would happen, and it played out almost exactly. As we expected, which was the complete decimation of public transportation in major cities around the US and the resurgence of personal automobiles. Um, The numbers are really staggering. Ridership uh, around the country is 40% of pre pandemic levels. In Washington and San Francisco, Washington DC and San Francisco, it's at 15% of pre pandemic levels. In New York City, it's at 30% of pre pandemic levels. And just this last week or so, we've seen transit agencies around the country say, we're shutting off ser- weekend service. We're going to you know, significantly scale back weekday service. And what happens is it doesn't really hurt a lot of the people who are able to work from home. It hurts poor people, people who still need to get to work. And it's really devastating for families who have to rely on the bus system and the metro system. So this is really bad all around, not just because it has this acute impact for people who really rely on these services, but also because it will extend the economic pain that a lot of these cities are going through. Um, and so it takes it can take years for these transit agencies to recover, and they have not gotten any federal relief. This ties into, Catherine, your point on the lack of um, additional economic relief packages. And um, the, the Republicans have failed to provide or show their support for, for um, any additional federal funds that would go to these agencies. Now, there is a $32 billion plan as part of this $900 billion congressional relief package that we're considering. Joe Biden has thrown his support behind it. He has expressed the need to, you know, continue funding um, public transportation in these major cities. But it's been really, really bad. Um and simultaneously, we've seen a lot of people buying pandemic cars. Um, it, we saw a 22% increase over co- in car buying this summer, and that's the highest level since 2007. And this is not something that will put cars on the road for a year or two years. The average car stays on the road for 11 years. So what we're talking about are two simultaneous impacts that we all saw were coming that could have reverberations for years to come. And we know that transportation emissions are now the highest source of greenhouse gases in the U.S., and this makes it harder to tackle that.
1: Yeah, boy, wouldn't it be great uh, with any kind of relief if you could tie it to electrification of some of these this sector? Because that would be super helpful, and it would also kind of goose the funding for— uh, for much more cost-effective technologies to be put into transportation.
2: Yeah, no, I totally agree. And so I want to stipulate that I agree with you completely around um, the impacts on communities. But I do want to give you a little bit of a contrarian view, which is that my own experience with transit is that they are completely inflexible. And when you think about, like, Ryan Popple, when we had him on the podcast, um he was predicting that we'd move to EV buses. Today the economics of moving to EV buses is like just rock solid and very few transit agencies are doing anything interesting in EV buses. I think when you think about all of the integration they were supposed to do with Uber and Lyft, they haven't done any of it. Some of the integration with Via is kind of happening. There's been tons of studies shown in LA and other places that micromobility, whether it's shared bikes or shared uh, scooters, etc., actually was providing really important services for uh, poor communities. And departments of transportation have not really embraced how to pay for those things through people's uh, you know, transit checks and transit dollars. And so at a time when they could have been offering more choices, which would have actually helped them through this crisis, they decided a long time ago they didn't want to provide choices to their consumers and instead wanted all of this stuff to be run separately from the Department of Transportation and, and Public Transit. And to me, that has to change. So I hope that those strings are attached to the $34 billion that's coming out of D.C., that they have to stop being a dinosaur. They have to actually figure out how to bring innovation into public transit. So a thing that didn't happen that we thought would happen
0: was supply chain disruption. I should say it did happen, but it didn't have the impacts that we thought. So in April, we saw... A lot of stories about the freeze in supply chains, not just in renewables, but in consumer electronics, in agriculture, in all sorts of heavy industries. Um, And that is, of course, because a lot of supply chains are rooted in China. And in particular, in uh, clean energy, we're thinking about wind turbine blades, gearboxes, battery materials, solar panels. Um, a variety of clean energy products. And everything froze all at once. Uh, In fact, our parent company, Wood Mackenzie, predicted that we would see many, many gigawatts of project delays as a result of the tumult in supply chains, mostly coming out of China. Uh, IEA predicted a similar drop. In fact, they thought that we would see, for the first time in 20 years, a drop in renewable energy deployment. And... What do you know? It didn't play out, and uh, companies found creative ways to source their products differently. A lot of countries um, broke down cross-border restrictions, uh, allowing for the movement of goods, and that opened things up. And very quickly, we saw clean energy rebound, and it turns out that this year, we're going to see a 7% increase in deployment of renewable energy, and 90% of new electricity capacity, according to IEA, is going to come from wind, solar, and water. A complete reversal from what we imagined back in April. So this is another really positive story that we weren't sure how
2: it was going to play out. It was looking really bad in the spring. Hey, you know, one anecdote is that in 2003, I paid $100 to post a bet on longbets.org, um that 75% of everything we deployed in electricity would be clean by 2020 and the EIA actually found my old bet and actually tweeted out that they were certifying that it was going to come true this year after all of the drama like eia.gov's like uh, official twitter account actually certified it that was awesome <laughs> Well, coming up, will targeting the PR
0: agencies behind the fossil fuel industry make a dent in emissions? First, a quick word about the folks who bring you this show for free. We're brought to you by Vertzilla Energy. Vertilla has created the Path to 100%, which is a group of leaders and industry experts working together to identify the fastest, most cost-effective ways to decarbonize electricity, not just city by city, but across entire states and nations. This means addressing economic, scientific, and political challenges that vary around the world. So the Path to 100% is not one-size-fits-all. Instead, it aims to provide information that can help each locality and company and person customize their own Path to 100%. To learn more and download the Pathway to 100%, visit pathto100.org. We're also brought to you by Honeywell. Honeywell has the next generation of smart grid technology right here, right now. Honeywell has partnered with leading cellular carriers to integrate 5G and LTE technology into its energy solutions for smarter buildings, cities, and mission-critical markets. Its scalable and customizable platform makes it easy for utilities to build grid intelligence and help customers find new opportunities for efficiency and automation Honeywell Smart Energy is delivering the future of utility connectivity. Learn more at smartenergy.honeywell.com. So the divestment movement has been pretty successful in moving institutional money away from fossil fuels. Over 1,300 institutions with $14 trillion to invest have vowed to eliminate fossil fuels from their portfolio since 2012. Bill McKibben, the prolific author, activist, and founder of 350.org, was a very important figure who articulated why that divestment movement should exist. And he helped create, with a lot of other organizations and people, create that strong movement. And earlier this year, activists who have been focused on divestment turned their attention to retail banking, calling out the financial institutions that serve customers like you and me, who are also heavily invested in dirty energy, telling people to cancel their checking accounts, cut up their credit cards, knowing that it wouldn't have much of an impact on the bottom line. But the idea was to strip the social license of these companies, embarrass them, and make them change their practices in other areas that they serve. As a result of all this activity over the years, large financial institutions have distanced themselves from coal, oil, and gas, including, at the beginning of the year, the world's largest asset manager, BlackRock. And now McKibben is turning his spotlight on the advertising industry, the marketing and public relations professionals who make it look like Exxon, for example, is in the algae business rather than the oil extraction business. In this New Yorker column outlining the strategy, one PR professional told him, every copywriter, designer, and strategist will have to pick a side. And McKibben explains his strategy this way. Now I want to focus on another industry that buttresses the status quo, the advertising, lobbying, and public relations firms that help provide the rationalizations and the justifications that slow the pace of change. Although these agencies are less significant monetarily than banks, they are more so intellectually. If money is the oxygen on which the fire of global warming burns, then PR campaigns and snappy catchphrases are the kindling. First of all, I love McKibben's writing, so I (laughs) wanted to draw this out. Um, He's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Catherine, what is this campaign all about? What do you what do you make of it?
1: Yeah, it's pretty interesting and it started with Edelman, a huge agency, PR agency, you know, some of its workers saying, Why are we doing this? Why are we working for a company that is helping other companies that are burning the planet down. And so they started this clean creatives group that pledges that as agencies, strategists, and creatives, we refuse any future contracts with fossil fuel companies, trade associations, or front groups. And as clients, we refuse any future contracts with agencies or creatives that work with fossil fuel companies, trade associations, or front groups. It's a little more complicated than this. So there are kind of two things that I think about. One is the money. There is so much money in ads and ad buying. Unilever spends $8 billion a year on marketing. And you think about where all the ads are, you know, baseball stadiums, um, just TV everywhere. Ads have a lot of money. So, it's hard to separate oneself from money if you are you know, given that opportunity. But the other thing is that these companies like Edelman, WPP, which I actually worked for Quinn Gillespie, which was bought by WPP for a while, um, Omnicom, all of these groups and actually Omnicom is owned by WPP too. These conglomerates, what they do is they buy a whole bunch of small boutique firms that have different specialties and different accesses and different skill sets. And then, then they're able to be a one-stop shop for all their clients. And often the the folks that they buy, the little companies that they buy, have nothing to do with what's happening, you know, three boutique firms over from them um, and may not even know what they're doing. So there's the money issue, but there's also just the issue of the, these are giant conglomerates that do a ton of different things. And, you know, they may do something uh, for clean energy in one piece of their their company. And then another piece, they'll do something for Exxon. It, so it's kind of hard to tease it all out.
0: jigger do you think this pressure
2: campaign will work? You know, I first of all, let me just say that I love Bill. and I love his writing. And I love what he does. I, I continue to get confused about, you know, like, whether this is sort of correlation or causation. And I feel like we continue to sort of just Confuse ourselves. Like, I mean, with divestment, for instance, you know, like oil was a terrible investment the last 12 years. People who agreed to divest early in that movement saved a lot of money. The New York pension funds, who just announced they're divesting this week, like lost a ton of money in oil before they divested. And so, like, I don't know whether people are divesting because it's just a bad investment they should be divesting or whether they're divesting because, um, you know, of the other piece of it. And then I think that like, so in this space, the thing that I continue to struggle with is when Catherine talks about boutique firms, let's describe what that means, right? There's a company that no one's heard of called Nike. There is a local firm that they actually invest in, right? Who basically does weird ass ads. And people are like, oh, this is really cool and hip and cool. And then like 15 years later, they actually become a fairly large firm. And then they get bought by WPP and the Nike account goes with that particular firm to WPP, right? The same thing happened with Walmart. The same thing happened with some of these other things. So the notion that you're going to get Edelman or WPP or whatever to say no to ExxonMobil, and then ExxonMobil can't just start another boutique firm with one of its current like, employees and spinning them out and saying, why don't you start this thing and like, have your cousin help you and whatever, whatever. Like, it just feels like part of the reason why this stuff works is because media is a business, right? There's $60 billion a year of ad buying to uh, television still right when you think about like the wall street journal and cnbc and the financial times who basically never do a story unless it's negative about clean energy right like there are editors who are awesome and love the energy transition they have to take their copy all the way up to senior people and who like edit and cut their, like, stories down, right? And then we go to Catherine Blunt or, like, you know, Russ Gold and Russell and say, hey, you know, how come you wrote that piece? Or, like, I had another 2,000 words in there that were awesome that got cut out of the piece. And, like, all of this stuff is really incestuous. Like, it's all tied together. And I just think that, like, saying that the ad agencies are not going to get any money from ExxonMobil and suddenly all of this stuff gets better... To me, like that, I think, is tenuous at best. I think you're
0: convoluting it. I don't think it's as complicated as you're making it out to be. There are a number of forces that have made companies change, and that is internal pressure. Companies like Amazon have had to shift their strategy in major ways because people within those companies have gotten sick of their feet dragging, and it has forced... Jeff Bezos and Amazon as a company to make much bigger moves and spend their money in different ways. The same thing happened at Facebook when Facebook was buying coal for its data centers. Greenpeace came out with a report shaming the heck out of them. And they Facebook felt, because of this external pressure, like they needed to shift. And now they're one of the biggest renewable energy buyers for data centers. And that happened with some of the other tech companies that were lagging. Um, the the I think the the proof is in the pudding with the divestment movement that pressure has worked and it's worked for financial institutions that were very heavily invested in this stuff and then Bill McKibben in this piece lays out um, a change over at Porter Novelli a major firm that has been working with the American Public Gas Association and they said as a firm we have reevaluated we bring in scientific assessments to how we're working with clients and we have evaluated the role of natural gas gas in the energy system and its impact on uh, climate change. And we are no longer going to work with the American Public Gas Association in 2021. That's freaking huge. I mean, think about how all these firms were like tripping over themselves to represent the gas industry and push this natural gas as a bridge from 2012 onward. I mean, that is such a monumental shift. And I actually think that the pressure campaigns are a lot simpler than you're making them out to be
1: but i agree with jigger in that the pressure campaigns while really important and really good at shining a light on things there there are a lot of other factors that go into that one of which is just public opinion has shifted i mean people have climate change smacking them in the face every day the impacts are are real and they can see them and so it's much harder to do an ad That said, and I just saw one on TV the other night. It was a gas industry ad that was like, don't do anything about climate now, it's too expensive. I think most people would call BS on that. But what they still do is like you know the sofa change that Exxon uses on algae. You know they, they have pictures of scientists with algae doing amazing things just to make them you know the greenwashing to make themselves look better or come up with you know these fake studies to show that they're climate friendly um, and that actually you know natural gas is a great thing. It's really good for you. Um, so they they can still do that. But I I do think that there's this this combination of factors. One is shining a light on it and. exposing the facts. But the other piece is just public opinion has shifted and it will continue to do so as the impacts of climate change are felt.
2: And how far does this go for you, Stephen? Like, so, so like, I think in your example, you're talking about employee led Efforts, which Bill Weil is doing at the tech companies, and I think is awesome. And so we should absolutely say that. But I don't think ExxonMobil is getting a revolt amongst its employees because they're working for an oil and a company. But, but the next piece of it is what about the airlines? Like, think about all these crazy stories we're seeing where Qantas is basically just having flights to nowhere. And they're bragging about how so many of their customers actually want to like just get in an airplane that like, they're just like circling around for six hours and then landing again. So should like all the ad agencies now like cancel airline industries because they're doing stupid things for the climate like that? Like, how far does this go? Like when you think about the ad agencies thing? What about cement companies who don't put in low-carbon cement technologies fast enough, or steel industries who are not switching to hydrogen for, you know, their important um, pieces, right? Or ag companies who basically are not moving away from fossil fuel-heavy fertilizer fast enough, right? Like, where does the cancel culture stop, and like, how is it that you're actually like making... You know, because you're telling young people to not work for this. This is so different
0: than cancel culture. No, you're saying
2: don't work for this firm, right? You're saying don't work for this ad firm because they take on bad clients. No,
0: I'm I'm saying this ad firm should not be serving clients that are trying to obfuscate and confuse about climate change, that are playing up and greenwashing. But they can, but you can make them, but you can make them. That's the whole point of this campaign is to articulate a vision for making them care about the clients that they take on. That's the whole point of it.
2: The response I would have to that, Stephen, is that like, the reason I think policy is so important is because that's how you do this, right? And the people that I think should be shamed are like the state legislature of New York that still hasn't passed the green cement bill. Or these other legislatures who basically are like, yeah, let's make it harder for the oil industry to operate in our state, but we're not going to ban internal combustion engines, right? That's how you do this. If you want people to change, you say, look, we're just changing. Like from now on going forward because of all the impacts on the climate and the impacts on frontline communities and the impacts on asthma and all the other things that we already know about, we as a public to have decided that we're passing a law that says that by x date we're going to ban the use of these high carbon Practices, right? And then the industry says, "Okay, we have a new set of rules. We are now going to change." And the the PR firms and the advertising firms, and everybody else gets in line. But I just think that we always let the politicians off the hook because it's like, oh, they're constituents and yada yada yada. But like, we're like, oh yeah, let's just shame this other person because it's hard for him to defend himself, and it's fine. D- d- who? What other person?
0: Like, that's such a straw man argument. I don't even know who you're talking about. Like, yes, the policymakers are shamed. Yes, the lobbyists who push this and try to convince the policymakers are no, ashamed. they're not. Like, that's no. what we're talking about. No, no. we're not. But, but I mean, that's the idea of this campaign. Not we're this not talking one. about the person who works at the concrete firm. Like, who, we're not talking about shaming those people. We are talking about decision makers at the top who are explicitly trying to confuse and delay.
1: Well, one thing I would point folks to, is, and I haven't had a chance to listen to all of the episodes, but. Amy Westervelt did a good podcast, her drilled series on sort of the mad men of fossil fuels and the whole propaganda oh, awesome. campaigns and how how they do this messaging. And I think that's what we're getting at is the communications industry and and how influential they are and how if we can put pressure on them that, you know. On them and on companies that are looking for services. So I'll give you an example in the lobbying industry. So my firm, uh, you know, we have we have a couple of things that we are we're, we're very values based. So by that, we never take fossil fuel clients. We only work for clean, clean energy clients and innovative clients that we think are doing the right thing. And then we also um, are you know, offer expertise because I have a technology background. So we offer this you know actually substantive expertise on connecting business and technology to policy. So we're out there selling ourselves in that way to clients that need that. There are a lot of lobby shops out there in D.C. that are very transactional. They will take money from anybody who will pay them for access to folks to do just series of meetings to you know help them spend money on polit- political fundraisers that kind of thing and they don't care and some of those have clean tech clients and they also have api it just doesn't matter they don't they don't differentiate at all they are purely transactional and it is nothing to do with the business that they're helping it is all to do with who is paying them to do what so that is what you have to differentiate is how do we separate out the people who are working on whatever they get paid to do, versus those who are working on the things that we think are in
0: our society important. And this is why I'm so passionate about it because I think you can change that. Like I think you can actually influence that kind of behavior. I mean, that's what the banks were doing with fossil fuels. Like they, I mean, there's just pure financial calculus, right? And then all of a sudden, you have these other external factors and the social license issue that they need to think about, which starts to influence the the ethics behind their investment decisions. So that's why I'm like, I think that you. Can change that.
2: Yeah, the only thing I'm saying, Stephen, on this in the t- terms of correlation and causation is that so generate capital doesn't do anything with high emissions industries, right? But the reason we don't do it is we actually think they're terrible investments. Right. Like that's why we don't do it. We don't think we're gonna actually have a license to operate those assets for thirty years because of regulation that's coming and all the other things. And and so that's why we don't make those investments. And I think that's why most of the banks have stopped making those investments, not because they got shamed into not making those investments. I think they stopped doing it because they're actually bad investments and we're saying, Well, Bill McKibben gets all the credit for it. And I'm like, uh, no, I actually think it's different. And I just the reason I bring it up so passionately is because I feel like th- We are spending effort from our best and brightest people on things that I don't think have the highest and best use of their efforts, right? And so, like, for instance, the Biden campaign said no money from lobbyists, right? Fine. But they didn't say you can't also bundle money. So those people just bundled $2 million dollars into his campaign, but they didn't personally give because they're a lobbyist and they still get all the access that they've got for bundling, right? They didn't say, we don't want any money that is even associated with you, right? And so it's just one of those things where I feel like some of this is just on paper and is not really going to be what changes the world. It's the actual deployment of technology and the fact that we're cost-effective and all that stuff that's actually, you know, changing the world. So should I... Keep the ExxonMobil
0: podcast I'm producing right now or not?
1: How much are they paying you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let's go to our third topic on the Youth Climate Corps. What if large numbers of young people and formerly incarcerated people could get decent paying jobs and forest restoration, coastal resilience, disaster preparedness? What if we could prioritize black and indigenous and other people of color for green work skills certification without people having to take out school loans? Some smart people think it's possible. Actually, a lot of smart people think it's possible. And we're talking about the youth climate core. Daniel Mooncheck Edelman, who has a background in workforce development, recently wrote a fantastic piece about this with some very specific suggestions. It was in Yale 360. And he's by, on, he's by no means the only one. The Biden campaign talked about this on the campaign trail. It was part of the climate po- policy platform and economic development platform. The Sanders campaign did the same thing. And Um, It's modeled after some historical programs created after the Great Depression and under the Kennedy administration to put young people to work, helping preserve the natural environment and build infrastructure. So Edelman points out that the National Park Service has a maintenance backlog in the billions of dollars. Surveys show that the country has land suitable to plant 60 billion trees. There's a lot that could be done. For forest restoration and coastal restoration. And um, he's writing about it because this seems to be a priority for the incoming Biden administration. So when could it become a reality? And what could the Climate Corps actually do? Catherine, what do you think about this idea? And where is it in the creation process?
1: Yeah, first of all, I think it's great. And I think it's totally doable. I spoke with Ann Mara Connelly, who, uh who is with Voices for National Service about what is this model? What is this national service model? And it's been around for decades, right? There is, there is already an infrastructure of nonprofits and of communities that have been doing this for a long, long time. So you could just use the existing infrastructure, and scale it up very, very quickly to do a lot of different things. She said, you know, there's this architecture that's been in place for three decades. And ra- right now we're in a world where COVID and climate are kind of all coming together, and people want to roll up their sleeves and get things done. So let's use that. It's very it's very democratized in that it's very community-based, so communities get to decide what they want to work on and where they need to put people to work. But it's out there. It's been there. AmeriCorps has been around for a while. And Senator Chris Coons, who ran an AmeriCorps branch and started one as well, he's a Democrat from uh, Delaware. Uh, Very good friends with President-elect Joe Biden, but also works in a very bipartisan way. And he has even introduced a piece of legislation called the CORE Act. And of course, CORE has to stand for something which is Cultivating Opportunity in Response to the Pandemic Through Service. And this is completely bipartisan. This whole notion of national service is very bipartisan. The people that are on his bill, and in fact, uh, Senator Coons doesn't do anything really if it's not bipartisan. He is very much about working across the aisle. He feels like he gets more sustainable solutions that way. Um, So Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee, whom I would not describe as a liberal at all, uh, is on it. Roger Wicker. Um, is is a very strong voice for this and believes very strongly in national service. And what you could do is take all this infrastructure that that exists, scale it up very, very quickly, and get people to work on a number of things that are locally very beneficial that also happen to have climate mitigation outcomes.
0: So, Jigger, what should Climate Corps members be doing? What is the kind of work that they're best equipped to do? And what kind of work shouldn't they be doing?
2: Well, I think the first thing for us to recognize is that, like, we on this podcast have talked about this since our very first episode, right? This is basically bringing back the Work Progress Administration. We talked about how Obama failed to do this in the stimulus bill. I think that, like, so part of this is that there are all these activities that FDR had, you know, the Civilian Conservation Corps do and other initiatives have done in the past that are really important, right? These are, like, Um, reversing erosion damage um, on our waterways, like figuring out how to restore our national parks and hiking trails and a lot of this kind of stuff, which ultimately through contractors and other stuff, you know, like kind of gets done, but gets done in ways that are ham-handed and not necessarily with the amount of passion and, and, and expertise that you'd like to see. Um, I think the other piece of this that I think people miss is that there's a lot of people who don't really believe in the capitalist system that we've established in America. And they actually like just working in service. And so I don't think this is really just about youth. It's also about people who are like, I don't really like the rat race. I don't really like, you know, having to like do this and the 401k and the this and that and the whatever. I'd like to just give back to my community. And is there a way for people to pay me to just give back to my community and to our country? And so I think this is super important, but I, I want people to think more expansively about how there are a percentage of people in this country who actually think that this is their best and highest Used to civilization and to our country, and this is not just some stepping stone for two years like AmeriCorps has been, or or other things have been for folks uh, on a temporary basis. I, I think that we think a little bit too, like through the lens of economists around recessions and and things like that when we think about these programs. And to me, it's really more about um, there's there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, and, and there's a lot of people who actually want to do it.
1: Yeah. So Jigger's right. There's AmeriCorps, but there's also Senior Corps and there are over 275,000 Americans right now serving. And some of the impact of this is pretty significant. So it, it mentors, it helps communities respond from natural disasters, certainly, um, it, it helps fight the opioid epidemic by putting people on the ground. It connects veterans to jobs and education resources. It supports independent living for seniors and Americans who have disabilities. It helps families achieve economic self-sufficiency. And those members and workers gain skills and experience that then help them get out into the job market for more sustainable employment. And the numbers are incredible on impact. So, for every dollar of federal funds invested, the federal government alone gets $3.50 in return just from tax revenue gains and savings. And the federal benefit-cost ratio is that for every dollar in federal taxes spent on AmeriCorps and Senior Corps programs, and that doesn't even include you know, something specific to Climate Corps, which would you would want to put a lot of money into – Um, The return to society, program members, and government is $17.30. So it is an incredibly cost-effective way to do things. It's a great way to get people on the ground learning new skills um, that are much more sustainable in nature. And as Jager said, you could put them to work restoring wetlands, doing park cleanup, habitat for humanity, doing energy efficiency. There are just lots and lots of things that you can do that will have positive climate outcomes
0: that brings us to the point that Daniel Munchek made in his piece, which is what shouldn't folks in the Climate Corps be doing. And that is high skilled jobs like, um, you know, electrical engineering or, you know, installing power lines or broadband. I mean, they're going to be doing a lot of more low skilled jobs like coastal restoration or building hiking trails or um, maybe, I don't know, building seawalls or like, you know, more construction oriented. um, i go ahead,
2: I'd say it a little bit differently, which is that i I don't think it's about skill level, I think it's more about liability so like there are jobs that require something to actually work right if you're gonna do broadband to someone's house like the broadband actually has to work and if it doesn't work, they actually need to be able to help, be held accountable to it not working and then someone has to go out and repair it and so I think it's really more about this liability piece like you want to give it to private sector companies if the electrical engineering, if done incorrectly, could (laughs) lead to loss of life or, you know, lack of like essential services or whatever. Um, And so I think that's, to me, the designation. I think a lot of these could be very high skilled jobs. Like you can imagine, um, like figuring out what's happening to bird populations, figuring out what's happening to migratory populations, like figuring out how to support a lot of these research efforts, uh, around species and biodiversity loss. And like, there's a lot of really important things that need to be done. Um, like counting butterflies, like, you know, which we've been reducing populations there and, and bee populations and pollinators and all that stuff. So I think there's actually a tremendous amount of skilled work for these people to do long-term that frankly just isn't being done because the federal government doesn't think that paying people Prevailing wage to do those particular jobs, like, is going to you know pass muster through the Congress.
0: I'm actually realizing now that I really don't like this uh, high skill, low skill differentiation because, like, I couldn't pour a concrete seawall. <laughs> like, I could. There's so many things that we're calling low skill work that, like, I would have no idea how to do, and like, somehow I've found a way to create a career about talking about things and editing <laughs> digital tape. Uh, so anyway, very low I, skill I, work, <laughs> very
2: very low skill. Yes, work. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Uh,
0: I, so I, I think it's actually a really good point too. Um, now that I'm now that I'm hearing this out loud, I don't really like that differentiation. Um, but what I mean, you know, the, the 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 worry here is that you do give people these jobs for a couple of years, and they can't get into the workforce. And like, what what about creating certification programs that allow them to build off of that work and then turn them into jobs that have a longer term impact on their lives?
1: Well, yeah, I think those a lot of that infrastructure already exists, and all those a lot of those services already exist. For example, you know they're they're already looking at these new online tools to allow some of the senior core folks to move on to virtual, you know, in a virtual mode. So I think um, something like the Core Act that uh, that Senator Coons and eighteen bipartisan co-sponsors um, have put forward, I think, is a really good start to doing some of this, to putting some of those processes in place that will enhance the the current infrastructure and and allow people to do that, to not only be able to access a lot of this service virtually, which folks are going to need to, and also to allow them to then transition easily into other jobs.
2: Yeah. I, I, I do think that in the 2009 stimulus bill, we actually put a lot of money into creating all these certification programs for auditing energy efficiency, you know, installing solar, I mean, lots of things. And so the curriculum already exists. And then frankly, because of the pandemic, all of these curriculums have been moved onto the web. And so you actually can do a lot of this stuff through streaming, et cetera. So you can imagine this actually being an essential part of the volunteering experience if people want to partake in it, right? They, they would just be offered for free for anybody who, uh, who joins these services. I guess the final
0: question is, how should we, how could we be prioritizing black indigenous people, people of color as part of this program?
1: Yeah, and you can't, You can put some numbers on it. So you could say, which Biden has done in in his climate plan, say 40% of the funds are going to go to frontline communities. And that can mean a lot of things. That could mean communities impacted by climate. It could be environmental justice uh, areas or just transition areas. It could also include rural communities that are in dire economic straits. So I think you can put some numbers on it to make sure that the communities in the most need get those resources. But remember, this is all very community-based. So also the communities get to decide what they need And what is going to be most beneficial to them?
0: It's that time of the show. It's free electrons. Catherine, what are you obsessing over, reading, thinking about this week?
1: Yeah, we have talked about this a little bit before, which is the replacement of gas generation with other technologies. And Gil Quinonez, can you? sorry, Gil Quinones from NYPA, New York Power Authority reached out to me. Now NYPA is US's largest state power organization. They own 16 generators and 1400 miles of transmission. They are targeting 2035 to eliminate emissions from gas plants, which is huge. This includes not just their big natural gas fleet, but also their small peaker plants. And they're going to be looking to pilot new technologies to supply electricity to backfill from that. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. You know, They're already about 80 80- percent renewable um, because of a lot of the hydropower that they operate. But they have some big gas plants. They have 135 megawatt Flynn power plant on Long Island, a 500 megawatt Zeltman dual fuel plant in Astoria and other PPAs. Um, but they're getting serious about this. And by 2035, they're going to cut all those emissions.
0: Jigger, what is your free electron?
2: So I'm going to instead use a corny story uh, that was floating around Facebook this week. Um, so there's a professor who basically asked every gave everybody a balloon, uh, asked them to put their name on it, inflate it, tie it, throw it into like this common sort of small room gave all of the kids it was like 200 people in the class five minutes to find their balloon and nobody could really find their balloon in this in this group and then said actually, I'll give you time now. anybody just pick out whatever balloon you find and hand it to the person that uh, whose name's on it, and they were able to identify every balloon and give it to the person whose name was on it in less than five minutes and I think it basically goes to show that like that this this whole pandemic right and all the other things that we're doing, I think everyone's trying to seek out their own personal happiness as opposed to necessarily trying to figure out how to um, help their neighbor, although a lot of people are. And I do think that in helping each other, we actually find our own happiness. And I do think that, that like that actually reverberates around, you know, the the way that our culture and our country has fractured itself. And I think we have to really think through like how we can actually make things more efficient if we rely on, you know, trying to help the next person as opposed to trying to help ourselves.
1: It's interesting, because I had a conversation uh, at Thanksgiving over Zoom with uh, my brother who lives in Appalachia. And he said, the divisions that the media seems to highlight, just he lives in a place that's very red. um, But he said that there's not a lot of animosity between people of all different political stripes. Everybody just has to work together to to get along. And he just, he said, I just want to downplay this division because where I live in a part of the country that people highlight as being divisive really isn't. So
2: I totally agree. agree with you. The derangement syndrome is alive and well on the East and West coast.
0: That's a really nice compliment to my story. I want to give a shout out to Nate Adams, who has been on this show before. Nate is the house whisperer. He's really obsessed with um, you know, deep home retrofits and uh, residential electrification, and I think Nate has been a real thought leader in this space. But this past year, as part of the pandemic, he he took his family and they went on the road and they've just been traveling all around and in the process visiting a lot of people who we might, those of us on Twitter, might know as the energy and climate Twitterati. And he has been like helping them with electrification assessments. Um, either, like, giving them explicit advice, helping them with retrofits, or, or uh, you know, just sort of outlining what they could do with their homes. And uh, Nate has also, you know, during some dark times for me, kept in touch with me and sent me well wishes and sort of... Um, just been a really po- nice positive force, um, even from afar. And I've been watching some of his visits and how like highly people speak of him. And I just thought, I just wanted to give him a shout out cause he's kind of a delightful f- presence right now.
2: So Nate came to Bethesda for like some sort of conference and I, uh, I met him out and, um, we had a long conversation, and he was like, I'm just going to do it for myself, and I'm going to write this book, and I'm going to get this done, and I'm going to just help whatever it is, two clients a month, and like it's going to change the world. And I'm like, hmm, I, look, I love your passion, Nate, but like you you doing two clients a month in Ohio, I don't know if it's going to really change the world, but go for it. I mean, what a difference a year makes, right? His book is out. It's extraordinary. He's like helping Julia Piper with her house. And like, she's and like a lot of people have jumped onto the Nate bandwagon and are making a difference in their own communities. And, you know, just goes to show how little I know. Yeah.
1: People are showing like pictures of their foam insulation (laughs) installations and saying, did I do it right, Nate? I love that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I think he's he's going to prove that like, the, the, the efficiency 1.0, which is like a little bit of weatherization, you know, maybe like some new digital technologies like that's not enough. And you can actually save way more money and build more effective programs by doing much, much deeper retrofits and replacing equipment. And, and these these sort of whole home retrofits that he is doing are much more effective. So I just think he's a good force in the industry right now and keep doing what you're doing. Uh, the other one is I have, I have two. Just this morning, Thursday morning, we dropped a podcast with Google that we've been working on for the last nine months. It's called Where the Internet Lives, and it's um, a six-part series on the world of data centers. And I think all data center operators are super secretive about what goes on inside their facilities, or, or it can appear that they're super secretive because no one's allowed inside them. And so what we were able to do alongside um, the folks at Google was to really open up that world and get a sense for how the machines work, how the buildings are constructed. And for folks who listen to this podcast who may be in the business world and infrastructure nerds, I think it will really appeal to a lot of the things that we cover on this show. And one episode in particular is about how Google is actually implementing inside its data centers and externally the 24-7 low carbon goal. And that is actually matching every electron with every bit and byte processed inside its data centers with low carbon electricity. And so we actually detail all the different ways that they're going to be able to do that looking at kind of the historical learnings all the way to now and into the future. We'll be publishing That's that awesome. episode next week as part of an agreement so we're going to be do, we're going to be cross-posting one of those episodes so people can actually hear that 24/7 low carbon episode and there's a bunch more content too.
2: That's awesome. Michael Trell and I have been good friends for a long time and I'm just glad to see a lot of the the hard work that they've been doing really coming to light.
0: Well, we have one more week together before the end of the year. So I look forward to that. And that's going to wrap up this week's show. The Energy Gang is a co-production of PostScript Audio and Green Tech Media. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Uh, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw are my regular co-hosts. If you want to show your support and help us grow, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Send out your wrapped 2020 year in review on Spotify and social media. Tell a friend or a colleague about the podcast. And... We're still taking ideas for our end-of-year episode, so message us on Twitter. There's actually a tweet at the top of the Energy Gang page you can respond to, and we are going to incorporate a ton of listener questions about the top stories of the year next week. Thanks for listening. This is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. Talk to you soon.